another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. I'm Pat Wright. And on today's episode, Pat, what are we listening to? We are listening to an opera by Leos Janacek, The Macropolis Case. And I listened to this a bit last week, and you've been listening to it, obviously, quite a bit. And it is a very different type of opera, and you are in love with the music. I have, I think I said this when we did the Katja Kabanova, which was our episode 67 opera for everyone. I am a complete Janáček fan. I love his music. It's different from a lot of the other operas that we've played. It's not an Italian opera, but it is gorgeous music. Early 20th century. And this opera in particular has a very, I think you said modern, it feels modern almost. I think it feels very theatrical, cinematic almost. It's it's a very dramatic way of storytelling. You don't get a sense of separate musical numbers at all, and that's not unusual. It, it, starting in the mid-19th century, that, that is a definite strategy of a lot of opera composers. And it's definitely the way that this opera will play out. So we will do our usual presentation on Opera for Everyone. We will talk and we'll play different pieces of music as we go along. But it's, it's good to remember that if you actually go and see this opera, which, by the way, if you get a chance, grab it, because it is not frequently produced, the Macropolis case, or any Janacek opera. I think Cunning Little Vixen is his most frequently produced opera, Yanufa probably next, Kacha Kabanova, and then this one. When you see these, it just flows, and your only break that you feel is between the various acts or scene changes. Mm-hmm. The dialogue is sung, and it all kind of flows together. Yeah, speech melody, they call it, in Janacek's case. Ah, not Singspiel. <laughs> this, Zingspiel. Is no, this is not Zingspiel. He is Czech. So it is done in the Czech language, and they say that it's important to have uh, coaching. If you're not a native Czech speaker, it's important to have coaching in the Czech language to get the intonation correct. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to point out for listeners that we here at Opera for Everyone have not had coaching, so apologies in advance. Oh, complete apologies. Yeah, but I, I believe most of the... I believe most of the singers in this particular recording that we're using are native Czech speakers. It looks that way from all the Z's and K's and (laughs) accents in the names. It was recorded in Prague with the Prague National Chorus and Orchestra, so made in the Czech Republic. It's homegrown. Yeah, so this is one of the the great operas of the Czech people, and Janáček, love Janáček. you know, You're such just, a fangirl. I am such a fangirl. I've, I've pulled up on Spotify <laughs> to listen to his, his symphonic works, too. It's, it's, I recommend it. Have fun with it. Well, let's jump into this. It's, it's unusual in that I may break one of our rules here at Opera for Everyone, and I may see if I can hold out a little suspense, see if I can prevent myself from tripping up and revealing any spoilers. No spoilers in this one, Pat. I'll try. I'll try my best because it's based on a play by a Czech playwright, Karol Kapek, apologies for my pronunciation, which was only premiered in 1922. This opera premiered in 1926 at the Brno National Theater. 
in the Czech Republic, well, in Czechoslovakia at the time. So it, it was a modern play that Janáček had seen shortly after its premiere, and he was so captivated by it, he worked very hard, very quickly, to get the rights to turn it into an opera. And it was not obvious operatic material. Hmm. Very dense, complex plot. And I've seen it variously described as a thriller and as a comedy. I think it's probably more thriller, mystery. Hmm. That's a good combo. Keeps us on our on our feet. You won't. You will not find the comedy in this opera, <laughs> but you will see the sense of mystery and thriller in it. Let's start by setting the scene of Act One. Okay. We find ourselves in the very thrilling setting of the office of an attorney. Oh yes. Filled that with, is thrilling. Uh-huh. Filled with books and papers and a clerk. Mmm, thrilling. <laughs> and a very downcast client. Mmm. And it turns out that this downcast client is awaiting the return of the attorney. The downcast client's name is Gregor. The clerk's name is Vitek. And the lawyer's name is Dr. Kolonati. But we start with Gregor, the client, and Vitek, and they are discussing the fact that Gregor's case should be settled soon. Nothing unusual there, except for the case that he is awaiting judgment on has been going on for nearly 100 years. Oh, wow. It is, it's a complicated case. In fact, as I was, as I was listening to this, it, it reminded me, are you familiar with Bleak House at all? The old Charles Dickens story, the Jarndyce and Jarndyce vaguely, case? Vaguely, vaguely. Yes, this concept that there's this ongoing case grinding through the law courts that consumes everyone and, and generations have died while this court case goes on. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, Gregor lets, lets you know right in the beginning that his own father has died by his own hand in desperation over not succeeding in this court case. Oh, wow. Case. Okay, so the stakes are high. Yes, it's, it's a case of inheritance, and it's, a, it's an argument ah. between Gregor's family and the family of the Baron, so we know already this is an elevated person, the Baron Prus. Right, okay. And into this glum scene in the attorney's office with all the papers and the glum client and the clerk, we have a little bit of sparkling light when a young woman comes in. And this is the daughter of the clerk, and her name is Krista. And she is a young opera singer. She comes in swooning over a more mature opera singer, the beautiful, the exquisitely talented Amelia Marti. And she wants everyone to know that she's thinking of even giving up singing because no one can even hope to rival the magnificent Amelia Marti. So let's meet all of these characters. Doktora tu není, dosud se nevrátil. A rozsudek stojí špatně, jsem ztracen. Nemohu sloužit, nevím. Starý je od rána u soudu. Zatelefonujte tam, prosím, ne. Halo, doktor Kolenatý. 
již odešel, tak děkuju. Již odešel, rozsudek. nemohu sloužit, když já si vzpomenu, že třicet let, třicet let jsme drželi ten proces. A vy hned k nejvyššímu soudu takhle zabít stoletou nežadvínku. Já to chci konečně vyhrát, nebo prohrát. Prohrajem-li, pak, pak se zastřelíte. Zrovna tak to říkal váš otec. Tak se zastřelil pro dluhy a konto dědictví. Mlčte, prosím vás. Tati, ta mort je ohromná. A kdo? No přeci Marty! Kdo je to? Emilio Marty! Emilio Marty! Má cena je urodí! to Opera for Everyone. On today's show, we are listening to The Macropolis Case by Leos Janáček, and we have just met two of our tenors, uh, Vitek, who is a, is a clerk of Dr. Kolonati, who is trying The Macropolis Case, Krista, his daughter, who is the lovely soprano we've just heard, as well as Gregor, who is the client in The Macropolis Case. And Pat, you told us a little bit about Krista and her admiration for Amelia Marti, who is an opera singer. So we, she was just talking about Amelia and her talents as an opera singer. What else were they discussing in that aria? 
Well, just for clarity's sake, I want to let you know that it's Amelia with an E, E-M-I-L-I-A, Marty, M-A-R-T-Y. And as she's going on and on about how amazing this woman is, Gregor, showing interest, says, well, how old is this fabulous Amelia? And Krista says, well, no one knows how old she is. Is she about 30? Well, maybe. I don't know. It doesn't matter. She's gorgeous. She's wonderful. And everyone's planning on going to the theater. But her father, of course, says, well, I'm not going to see her, darling. I'm going to see you at the theater. Because, <laughs> you know, she's, she's a young opera singer there. But she thinks they're all ridiculous. They should all just be going to see this wonderful, amazing woman. And enter Dr. Colonati. He's returning to his office. And guess who is coming into the office with him? Um, Amelia? Exactly. Oh, well, Krista just about... Loses her mind. Her idol is entering. She swoons. She can hardly, hardly believe that she's come in. And Emilia Marti is every inch the, the diva, really. She seems on another plane from these mere mortals. And, <laughs> and Dr. Colonati says, well... Madame, please have a seat. How can I be of a service to you? And she says, well, I'm, I'm here about the Gregor case. Oh. And it's very surprising that she's there about this, this case. She doesn't seem to have any connection to it. Well, she's, she's pulled out a piece of uh, a clipping from the newspaper. Well, I've, I've heard that it's to be settled today. It's, it's meant to be ending today. I understand that you are the solicitor representing this man, Gregor, over here, over the legacy of the old man, Proust. And Colonati says, well, are you referring to the Baron Josef Ferdinand Proust, the one who died in 1827? In other words, almost 100 years prior, because remember, the setting of this is 1922. Mm -hmm. And listen to what her response to that is. Oh, he's dead? It's a curious thing for her to say. Huh. And he says, well, of course he's dead. That was almost 100 years ago. Oh, poor fellow. No one ever told me. And he just shakes it off and says, well, is there anything else I can do for you? Um, could you tell me something about the case? Well, in the year 1820, the Proust estates belonged to the half-witted Baron Josef Ferdinand Proust, this man who died. She says, what? Peppy? Half-witted? Well, maybe he was eccentric. She says, no, he wasn't. And he's like, well, what can you possibly know about this man who died 100 years ago? She says, well, you can't possibly know anything about him either. Why are you casting aspersions on him? So it's a very, very odd conversation yeah. these two are having. He says, well, it doesn't matter. He died intestate and without issue in 1827. Now, you know what intestate means, right? No. Mm -mm. Intestate means you died without a written will. Oh, okay. Or certainly without a written will that anyone was able to locate. Right, okay. So it means without issue, no, no children, no obvious heirs, and without a written will. So it means another family member, it would have to go another route for inheritance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is what would then lead to court battles about right. these inheritance issues. So the property, he says, that the attorney explains the property was taken over by a cousin, and... That would have been that, except the inheritance was contested by a person named Ferdinand Gregor. Now you're starting to make connections because the mm -hmm. client 
who now, 100 years later, right. is in the office of this ongoing case. His last name is also Gregor. Right. And he says, that's the great-grandfather of my client. And he says he was the rightful heir. And it gets a little confusing, and I will save you some of the enormous amount of detail that's in here. But Emilia Marti talks about these people in the present tense. Yeah. And the attorney explains that this Ferdinand Gregor, the one who said he was the rightful heir back in 1827, was a minor. He was a student at an academy at the time when the owner died in 1827, and he was named the heir, but then no will was ever found, and that's why Mm -hmm. the, the cousin took over. So he doesn't seem to have a real strong claim without a will being found. And Emilia Marti is sort of nodding her head like like she knows something. And all the while, while she's acting like she knows something, and she's, she's kind of looking and nodding at Gregor, the, the client, the one who's just said how important, you know, who's clearly not as well off as everyone else around him, except maybe the clerk at this point, who, who clearly is acting like this is sort of his last chance at a, at a good life. Right. He's, he's looking at Marty for encouragement in his suit, and just little morsels of encouragement are being dropped by Marty in his direction. Just little bits of encouragement. Dr. Colinati says, well, there's, there's this bit of confusion here. He says, while he was dying, he said that this estate should really belong to a man named Gregor Mack. Note that the surname was Mack. And Marty's just shakes her head like you stupid stupid people no the name is mcgregor like the scottish name mcgregor well that doesn't make any sense because the man who says he's supposed to inherit it is ferdinand gregor (sighs) marty just sighs like oh you stupid people just wait a short while you will see that this young man ferdinand gregor the one who says that he was the rightful inheritor that, of course, was Pepe's son. And Pepe is this little sweet name, this little diminutive, familiar name that she is giving to the man who owned the estate and died in 1827. So it's interesting. And Colinati is like, what? The, the man who's claiming all along, the man who was a, was a boy in 1827 who's claiming all along he's the rightful heir? whose name doesn't match. You're saying that he was really the son? And how do you know all this stuff about 100 years ago, that none of this makes sense? And by the way, who was this boy's mother? And she says, just just wait, I'll, I'll show you. His mother, her name was Elian MacGregor. Ah. She was a singer at the opera. What did you say her name was? Gregor asks the client. Scottish name, MacGregor. Can't you see what happened? He was an illegitimate child. Her name was MacGregor, but in order to save her reputation, they named him with the last name Gregor, so as not to get her into great trouble. And in order to protect his son born out of wedlock when he was dying, the Baron Prus wanted his son, Ferdinand Gregor to inherit this estate, thereby taking care of his son, even though he couldn't publicly acknowledge him. Mm -hmm. 
but because there was no will ever found, it's been in the courts ever since. Hmm. And no one could ever prove this, is what she's saying. But this has all been a secret all hmm. this time. And not even, not even the child knew, not even this young man, Gregor, knew who his mother was. Mm. And that's part of what Marty is saying. The son didn't even know. And, and they're just saying, how, how can you know what was going on in the 1820s? How can you possibly know? And she just shrugs. She's a diva after all. Like I said, she's walking like she's on a different plane from all yeah. of these Yeah, details. People. Don't bother me with the details, darling. I, and I know. I know these things. And she says, listen to me. I can provide you proof. Go into Peppy's house. Who's living there now? Who's living in that estate right now? Well, it's a descendant of this cousin who took possession. Hmm. And it is the current Baron Proust who is living there. She says, well, go into his house. There's a cupboard. And every drawer had a number of a year marked on it. Go in there and look in those drawers and you will find one marked with the year 1816. That was the year Pepe got to know Elian McGregor. And in that drawer, he kept love letters sent to him by Elian. Don't ask me how I knew about that, because he does. (laughs) There are letters there from his agents. In fact, piles of old documents. Go and look through them. And there you'll find the things that you need. So I've gone and told you a lot of details. Let's hear a bit of all of that, the way that Janacek presents it to us in his gorgeous opera, The Macropolis Case. Pardon, pardon, proti tomu namítal baron Emmerich Prus, že ze snulí nezanechal psaného testamentu. A naopak, že ve své poslední hodince učinil ústní pořízení ve prospěch osoby jiné. Vždyť to není pravda. Dobrý ten háček. Vždyť to není možná. Dobrý ten háček. Hned vám to ukážu. Umírající ve vysoké horečce prohlásil několikrát, že zboží loukov Hermach Gregorců komenzol po Česku tehody Machovi. Skripta valet. Co je psáno, to je psáno. A zatím kuzím si vhází. Vyšáral nějaké individuum, které se jmenovalo Zehoř Mat. Počkejte. Počkejte. Vždyť to byl
Co v něm je, jaký je? 
All right, so we've, uh, there's a lot of plot happening here, Pat. Yes. Lots of plot happens. <laughs> plot happens. So Emilia Marti, the famous diva opera singer, has just laid out a really wacky story about a guy that died 100 years ago, and she seems to be like his contemporary and his friend and has a lot of information about his love life and stuff and says like hey go look in this drawer in the house and you'll find all of this information to back up this crazy story that I've just told you yes in fact she says not only will you find love letters there you will find in that particular drawer a yellow envelope and in it you will find his last will and testament duly signed and sealed and the lawyer is just shaking his head how could you possibly know that she says and in that last will and testament he leaves his entire estate to his illegitimate son ferdy again that little diminutive affectionate name mm-hmm. for his illegitimate son that he had with Ilian mcgregor hmm. so Colinati, the lawyer, says, and you're sure it's sealed? And she says, yes, confirming that it's legitimate. And he says, with Joseph Proust's own seal? And she says, yes, triumphantly. And he says, well, that's wonderful. And then he just shakes his head. You must think we are stupid. You must think we are simple children to fall for these ridiculous stories, these fairy tales. And she's beside herself. How can you not believe me? It's true. It's absolutely true. And he's indignant that she's wasting their time. Gregor, on the other hand, has almost the way that Krista did. Gregor feels this incredible attraction and belief in her. Gregor says, no, I I believe you. I I absolutely believe you. And the lawyer's says this is fantastical this makes no sense and Gregor says that's it if you won't act on this if you won't go retrieve those papers I'm going to call another lawyer and he picks up a directory and he grabs the telephone and he says I'm going to find the first one in the phone book and the lawyer says you wouldn't dare my father before me and my grandfather before me have been trying this case for your father before you and your grandfather before you. This has all been going down through the family. And just a little side note, this is the first opera ever that featured a telephone in the opera. Oh, fun fact. Fun fact. Um, and that's enough to get uh, the attorney's attention. Dr. Colinati says, very well, I will go over to the house. I will get in there some way or another. I will get Baron Proust to let me look and we will see what we can find, as ridiculous as this story is. And he leaves. So, Pat, I have a question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Only one. If Gre- <laughs> Yes, just one at the moment. If Gregor is the descendant of the illegitimate child or whatever, but he was, it was actually positioned as the, the cousin, do I have that correct? So Proust no. said... No, Proust is the is the descendant of the cousin. Gregor is the descendant of the illegitimate child. 
So the the Prusses are the are the 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 cousin line, I and the Gregors see. are the line underneath the illegitimate son. I see, and so the illegitimate son just kind of disappeared, or whatever, and they well, presumably he died because he was born in the eighteen. 18- 20s. Right, but they but they had no claim and they just sort of, you know, like that that's the whole okay. All right. So they've little, been a, a little slow on the up, uptake. No, no, no. Please I, don't I say I that. This is complicated. This is very complicated. And remember this started out as a play. I don't think anyone would initially write this as an opera libretto, honestly. But it was a very compelling play and it's it's fascinating because it's a device that's used as we get further into the story you're going to see how this is a a device that's being used for a greater dramatic purpose mm, okay so the the legal case needs to be there so that all of these interesting things involving emilia marti can happen so keep I your see. eye on the ball with emilia marti yes. would be my advice yes because she's clearly an interesting character not you know despite the complexity that she adds to the plot she's just an interesting character yes and she's the the i'll tell you this up front she never lies huh there you go she never lies interesting okay Mm -hmm. so she said i double dog daria to go to the Baron's estate, go in this particular drawer, open it up. I swear to you, you'll find this sealed thing. And so you should do that. And Gregor's like, I believe you, I believe you. And if you don't do this lawyer, then I'm going to hire a new lawyer. And that's a threat that he's ready to carry out. But when he's ready to carry it out, his lawyer caves and goes to do it. So everyone takes off and left alone on stage, we have Gregor and Amelia Marti. Gregor is infatuated because Gregor, in answer to Marty's question, when she says, how old are you? He says 34. And remember when they were trying to guess how old Amelia Marty was? Nobody knew. Then nobody knew, but they said, I don't know, in her 30s, somewhere she's gorgeous. So from Gregor's point of view, they seem to be about the same age. Yeah, he's like, so what are you doing on Saturday? Well, he is. He's, he's kind of falling for her, really. He, and he's... He's so attracted and he feels so connected with her. He he doesn't really know how to interpret all of these powerful feelings. And gratitude is among them because she seems to be taking a real interest and also maybe has some amazing ability to be helpful to him. Mm-hmm. Some concrete information that she has can be truly helpful. And he says, well... If this all comes to fruition, you must let me know what I can do to repay you. And when he says this to her, she is insulted to the extreme. Really? She's sort of speaking to us. This little man is offering me money? Disdain just dripping from her when she says this. And here he is, this grown man. And he's so upset. Am I a child to be talked to like this? He, he doesn't 
know what to make of her. He he feels this enormous attraction to her. He feels this huge debt of gratitude. He wants to do the right thing by her because she's being kind to him, but he can't he can't get mutual connection back from her. And so she is by turns haughty and cold, but then also a little bit tender with him. It's very confusing. It's very confusing for him. And so besides asking him how old he is when he tells her he's 34, well, what's your name? And he says, Gregor. And he's just, she's like, you stupid child. What's your Christian name? His name is Albert. Oh, I suppose your mom calls you Bertie then. And so for the rest of the play, she calls him Bertie. <laughs> and he says, well, she might have, but my mother's not alive anymore. And when he says my mother's dead, she's not sympathetic or anything. She's just like, ugh, all of them go the same way. Again, a curious way to respond to somebody who's moved by the revelation that their mother's dead. Mm -hmm. And then Gregor says, well, tell me about this Elian McGregor, who's come up already in the conversations. And there's nothing much to say. Well, she was a famous singer. Was she beautiful? Yes, she was beautiful. Was she in love with my great-grandfather? Well, maybe in her own way. When did she die? I don't know. That's enough. No more questions. And then he's back being in love with her. And there's this, just this interesting... I don't, it's In this scene between the two of them, for me, it became very clear why this opera truly needs singing actors Mm. the level of acting required for these roles not just these two but all of them Mm -hmm. but it's particularly clear in this scene that the level of acting required for these roles is very high Mm -hmm. this is not an easy scene nor many of the others these scenes are hard to pull off because there's so much complexity in these characters Hmm. All right, let's hear a little bit between Albert, Bertie Gregor, and Amelia Marti. Nevim 
The Macropolis Case by Leo Janacek on Opera for Everyone. And we have heard some explanation of this elaborate and very complex and highly unusual story about <laughs> our Baron Proust and his alleged lover, Elian McGregor, and their alleged son, Ferdy. And... Emilia Marti has explained this all to Albert, or as we are now calling him, Bertie. Bertie, or Gregor, to everyone else in the cast, yes. <laughs> Who, you know, ostensibly, according to the to this theory, is the, the rightful heir, the descendant and the heir to Baron Proust's estate. Yes, the, the case that's been tied up in court for nearly 100 years now. 
So what happens next? Oh, it's so complicated. Well, the two of them are waiting in the lawyer's office, and right at the end of this interchange between the two of them while they're alone waiting in the office, Amelia Marty turns to him and says, Do you remember a few moments ago you you offered to give me something in exchange for your gratitude? Well, I've thought of something. Oh, and what is that? She says, Do you know how to read Greek? And he says, no. She says, well, that doesn't matter. There's some documents that they're going to find when they find this sealed will, because she has no doubt that they're going to find it, even though the attorney who's left to go get it is sure that it's not there. Mm -hmm. She says, there's a Greek document amongst those papers. I would like that document. That's what I want from you. I want that document in Greek. So she has an ulterior motive. He says, I I don't think there's any Greek paperwork amongst all of that. And she says, I need the document written in Greek. And she gets dead serious now. So up to this point, she's been very disconnected from the the day-to-day cares of all the other characters there. But she is down to brass tacks at this point where she says, I need this document in Greek. I must get it back, she says. Again, an interesting way to put it. Right. And he's like, well, I'll do what I can. He doesn't mean to stand in her way, but he's not really sure what he's supposed to do about it. And just about this time, Dr. Colonati returns and bursts in saying, we found it. I'm so sorry. I doubted you. Of course, here it is. A thousand apologies. Forgive me. We found the will. It's just like you said it was. There's this Greek document. Our case is established, and clearly Gregor wins it. And Marty, Marty doesn't actually care about Gregor winning his case, curiously. She says, but where are the letters? Dr. Colinati says, well, well, which ones? The ones from Ilian, Ilian McGregor. He's walked in with the estate owner slash occupier, Baron Proust. He says, I have them with me still. But Mr. Gregor need have no fear. Colinati gestures towards Mr. Proust. This is our arch enemy, Mr. Proust. This is Miss Marty. And Baron Proust says, well, before I hand everything over, there's just one little thing missing. We need some proof first that this son, Ferdinand, was really the son of Baron Proust. What proof do we have that that Ferdinand was actually his son? It's just some story from Miss Marty. She says, okay, I'll get you proof. I'll get it to you in the morning. And they can't quite imagine how in the world she would get them proof. Well, what do you do? Carry it around with you in your suitcase? She just nods and says, yes, I do. I carry it around with me. I'll get it to you. What could it be? Written proof. It's written proof. (laughs) And so in this final bit of act one, everyone's very wound up and very excited about how this story is going to continue and resolve itself. Oh, 
Listening to Opera for Everyone, and on today's episode, we are listening to the Macropolis case by Leos Janacek. And we have wrapped up Act One, which was pretty weird. And according to Pat's foreshadowing, things are about to get even weirder in Act Two. <laughs> yeah, Act One is is relatively normal. <laughs> but remember, this is mysterious, and right, it's a these, thriller. He's yeah, I mean, I'm not sure they would. It would be considered a thriller by today's standards, but there's there's something going on that's not of the ordinary understanding. Because after all, she did know about the will, where that will was to be found, and what was in it, and it did establish Gregor's case as long as they could prove that. Ferdinand was a legitimate son. And she says she can prove it. So act two begins and we are at the theater. Miss Marty, we don't see the performance at all, but Miss Marty has just concluded a performance at the opera. Mm -hmm. And before we see any of that, we see a woman and a man, a stagehand, and one of the cleaning ladies at the theater cleaning up after their performance. And they are remarking on the amazing power that this woman has to influence people and her admirers. And Proust, the Baron Proust, will come in because he is waiting to speak to Miss Marty. And Krista and Janek will come in. And Janek is the son of the Baron Proust. And he is smitten with the beautiful young opera singer, Krista, who is the daughter of the clerk. So he is of a higher class, but he is a young man who has a very powerful, rich father. But he is totally in love with the lovely young Krista. Krista, who is completely enamored of Ms. Marty. Ms. Marty. In fact, that that is the very topic of conversation when those two enter the stage. When they come on the stage, they are talking about different things. She's talking about how wonderful Miss Marty is, how what a what a great singer she is and maybe Krista should give up singing entirely or maybe she should give up everything else in her life to devote herself completely to singing. And 
Yannick is just following her around like a puppy dog. He adores her completely. And one moment she says, no, I, I think I should probably give up singing because all I can do is think of you. And you can see his heart just leaps at the thought that she, she thinks of him at all because he adores her. And then she pushes that thought away and he's crushed beyond all hope. It's, it's very sad for him because he's just hanging on her every word and she's, she's not really there with him at all. And she's just like, oh, Yannick, you just don't understand what it's like. She's, she's amazing and, and I want to be just like her. And you get kind of a weird feeling inside when she says she wants to be like Marty because Marty has not shown herself to be a truly admirable person at this point. So it's a, it's a weird feeling that you get. Hmm. She's beautiful, she's regal, but she's not, she's not shown herself to be a warm person. Mm-hmm. But we do know that she never lies. Only because I told you that. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm, try- I'm trying to help you a little bit with the mystery. <laughs> Krista does wonder out loud to Yannick, do you think there's anyone she's in love with? And Yannick can't even, like, keep his head on in the game with her. She's like, who? Who are you talking about? Miss Marty, do you think she's in love with anyone? And Yannick can't even engage in this conversation because he just wants to kiss Krista. Aww. Well, and at that moment, of course, that's when Daddy Deer walks in. Baron Proust comes in and he's like, never mind, I've got more important things to do than to get upset about you kissing a girl. (laughs) And at this point, this is when Miss Marty comes in. She's like, no more admirers, no more admirers, because that's the thing about Miss Marty. She has all these fans, and just like Krista, all the fans want to shower her with affection from from afar, want to get close, but not be personal friends, but just want to show her yeah. how much they admire her it's beauty. It's like the, 19, the 1920s version of taking a selfie. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. And so she, she takes a moment and takes a look at these two young people, she remembers seeing Krista before. She's seen her at the Opera House. She remembers seeing her briefly at the solicitor's office. And she sees the two of them here together now. And she can tell there's a little something between them. And it's a very interesting bit of commentary that goes on there. She laughs and she says to Vitek, the clerk, who is the father of Krista, who's come onto the scene at this point, And she said, do you think those two have been to paradise yet? And he's like, excuse me, ma'am, what? She said, do you think they've been to bed together yet? <gasps> what? And he, he's completely shocked by such a comment. And Krista is blushing all over, completely shocked by such a comment. And she's just dismissive. And she says, well, if you haven't, then you will. But don't do it. I assure you, it's not worth the bother. And Baron Proust says, well... What do you think it's worth then? She says, nothing, nothing at all. Don't do it. It's not worth it. So you're getting a sense of her not putting value on the things that the people around her might put value on. She's not playing in the same world that everybody else is playing in. She says things that are shocking to the people around her, and then she's dismissing things that would have importance or weight, just as Mm -hmm. she did when... Gregor talked about his mother being dead. 
Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for a mainstream audience. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. Opera for Everyone is hosted by me, Keely Heron, and me, Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, where you can also send us a message. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. Welcome to the second half of today's episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. I'm Pat Wright. And on today's episode, we are listening to The Macropolis Case, an opera in the Czech language by Czech composer Leos Janáček. And we have just begun Act 2, where our diva, Emilia Marti, and her admirer, Krista, who is also an opera singer, are backstage after a performance 
and Krista is talking with her beau, Yannick, who is the son of the Baron Proust. So, Keely, are you just going to go jump into the opera helmet quiz right now? I suppose I should. (laughs) Or do you want to tell us who the performers are first? Oh, right. Yes. Thank you, Pat. Okay. I... I did forget. I was going to say I almost forgot, but I forgot, and you reminded me uh, that at the beginning of the second half of every show, we thank the people who created the performance that we're using on today's show. So on today's episode, we are listening to a recording that was made in 1965 in Prague with the Prague National Chorus and Orchestra, conducted by Bohumil. Gregor, apologies to uh, anyone in the Gregor family for the possible mispronunciation of that name. The Macropolis Case is an opera in three acts composed by Leos Janacek based on a play, which was a comedy, by playwright Carol Chepik. And uh, Janacek actually wrote the libretto uh, to accompany the music. It was set in Prague in 1922 and premiered in 1926, so it was a contemporary play at that time, or a contemporary opera at that time. In the role of Emilia Marti, our lead soprano, we have Libusha Prilova. Albert Gregor, or Bertie, is played by Ivo Zidek. Vitek, the clerk of Dr. Kolonati, is played by Rudolf Vanasek. Krista, his daughter, is played by Helena Tatarmuskova, and Baron Prus is played by Premil Kochi, and his son, Yannick, is played by Victor Kochi. And Dr. Kolonati is played by Carol Berman. And that's today's recording. And now, briefly, bring us up to speed on our plot. Don't go into too many details because it's gone. It's complicated. What what do we need to know to enjoy the second half? Okay, so as I just said, we're set in Prague in 1922, and the action centers around a case, the Macropolis case, which is a legal case that is being argued by Dr. Colinati at this point, and it was argued by his father and his grandfather before him because the case has been going on for a hundred years since the death of the original Baron Proust, who died without a will and without an heir. And so upon his death, the estate went to his cousin, and his cousin's descendants remain in control of the estate. However, immediately after the Baron's death, the will or the estate inheritance was contested by the Gregor family, who we've come to learn may in fact be descendants of the Baron that were born of sort of an... uh, uh, an out-of-wedlock relationship between a, a famous opera diva of his time named Ileana McGregor. And so Albert Gregor would be the descendant of that child. And when the action began at the beginning of the opera, we were set in the chambers or the office of Dr. Colinati, who is the lawyer representing Albert Gregor in his claim against the estate. And Krista... Uh, the daughter of Vitek, 
the clerk, is an opera singer, and she says, oh, Amelia Marti, this famous diva is amazing, and I'm in love with her. And then who should walk through the door but Amelia Marti herself with Dr. Colinati, the lawyer. And Amelia is the strangest character in the opera. And she says that there is, in fact, a will. And they say, how do you know this? And she says, doesn't matter. Go to the estate, look in this particular drawer labeled 18, whatever it was that he died. And in that drawer, you'll see a yellow envelope that's sealed with the wax seal of the Baron. And in that, you will also find letters uh, that prove that he had this relationship with this opera diva and that there was a child and that that child was named Ferdy. Ferdinand. To spare Elian McGregor's reputation, they said that the child was, the last name was Gregor. And and so the, the child was not acknowledged as hers or the Baron's, apparently. So the lawyer and Mr. Gregor, the, the claimant on the estate, and everybody are incredulous and they think, why... Would you know all this and why are you talking about these people as if you know them very well and that you're their sort of contemporary? Um, and she said, it doesn't matter, just go and find it. So they do go to the estate, they find it, they come back and they say, yes, it's true, this is all true, that's really weird, how do you know this? And she still refuses to say how she knows and they say, well, this is all well and good, but we need to prove that this child is actually the son of the Baron and not someone else's son. And she says, I can prove that. And they, they ask her how. And she says, it doesn't matter. I have written proof. And so they then leave to go to the opera house because there's a, there is a performance that evening that Amelia and Krista are performing in. And so everyone goes to the opera house and then cut to... The next scene, Act 2, where Krista and the Baron, or rather the Baron's son, Yannick, are chit-chatting about their future and how Krista should just not even attempt to be an opera singer anymore because Amelia is too fabulous. And the, the Baron's son, Yannick, says, or you could just abandon singing altogether and just be my wife. And she says, oh, that's silly. And then Amelia comes in and she's like, no more fans. You know, I'm, I'm tired. And, and that's where we ended part one. Did I miss anything? You did great. You did great. There's just, there's a lot going on in this story. You can understand how this could easily be a play that just chugs along. It was surprising to people when Janacek said he wanted to turn this play into an opera just because there's so much density of information here. Mm-hmm. So I do apologize if I miss a beat or two, um, but I think I think anyway I, that you can still have a lot of fun with it. I'd, I'd like to introduce a new character now coming into the backstage, and he's one that I quite enjoy <laughs> because he's an elderly man, a quite elderly man, who comes in and he's another admirer. And as he comes in with his words of admiration for Miss Marty, she is just acting tired of it all until she hears his voice and what he has to say. You're so like her, her voice, her eyes, her head. You're the spitting image of her, and he is clearly so moved to his core. 
And he says, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm a little mad in the head ever since she left me, you see. And she looks at him carefully and he says, oh, I know I'm a little crazy, we were lovers. 50 years ago, 1865. And she sits up straight and she takes notice of him and she says, yes, that's right. And she's taking him quite seriously as everyone else is completely dismissive of him at this point. She was a gypsy woman. We lived in Spain. We were lovers. Everyone thought she was marvelous. She was a dancer. We were so happy there. And ever since she left, I've been in a daze. My life seems like a never-ending dream. She died so long ago. And Amelia Marty says, died? What nonsense, Maxie, kiss me. And she bends down and she kisses him. And he says, Eugenia. And he kisses her, besame, besame. And the two of them fall down together in an embrace. And everyone's simply astonished by this behavior between the two of them. And he says, ah, I shall be back. Au revoir, Eugenia. And that's the scene between these two lovers. And he promises to come back for her. And she seems completely encouraging of this old man. And everyone else is stunned. Stunned. Shall we hear them? Yes. Rozumie. 
už pak nežil, to byla jen dřímota. Co je vám po dávno mrtvé ženě? Mrtvé? Po jeho lůbe, Maxi! This is Opera for Everyone, and we've just heard from Amelia Marti and Hauk, her lover, in Leo Shinacek's The Macropolis Case. We've just sort of kicked off Act Two, and where do we go from here, Pat? Well, Amelia Marti was not the lover of Hauk. Eugenia Montez, the Spanish dancer, was the lover of Hauk. Oh, right. Yes, I, I forget. I'm blurring the lines between her. You know, she reminds me of, um, like, she's just, like, been alive for hundreds of years. Um, like that. Did you ever watch Game of Thrones, Pat? I did not. So there's the red woman, I think, or the red lady. I forget what she is. But, uh, yeah, like, she's just been alive for, like, thousands of years. That's who this character reminds me of. So I don't, yeah, when I say that... Hauk and Amelia were lovers. I just am assuming that she's the same person and she's just been alive. You for may be onto something there, Keely. You may be onto something. Well, this is opera, Pat, so anything is possible. Anything is possible. So he has left, Hauk has left, promising to return to Amelia Marti. To Eugenia, Pat, to Eugenia. And we still have all these characters in the backstage. Among them still are the young lovers, Krista and Yannick. And Yannick is looking more intrigued and entranced by Marty, Amelia Marty. Uh-huh. Which is surprising because he could barely remember her name when Krista was talking about her earlier. And... Marty wasn't really paying attention to anyone other than the old man until Vitek comes up with a poster from the opera house saying, would you please sign this for my daughter? She so admires you. And that finally snaps her back to the present. And she says, okay, for for Krista, I will sign it for Krista. That seems to be the only actual person she can have a little bit of human kindness for, actual human kindness for, is Krista. And so she signs the, the poster, and she's ready to shoo everyone away, particularly Gregor. She's just, she's kind of had it with him, because he seems to be so 
attentive towards her because he wants so much from her. And Proust is really pushing himself on her too because he's very intrigued by her, not only because she's a beautiful woman, but how did you know that I had this stuff in my house? Did he even know? Did he even know that that stuff was there? No, he did not. Right. He did not. And he thinks it's very suspicious. Mm. How did you know that those particular letters were there? And how did you know that Pepe's will was there and sealed up? And it doesn't make any sense that you could pinpoint it not ever having been in this house. It, it just, he's trying to figure out this, this mystery. And he says, by the way, it is my house. So I was, I was reading a lot of those letters. And this, uh, this Ellie and McGregor, I read her love letters. Some pretty shocking stuff in there. Oh, really? Like what? I'm no babe in the woods, he says. But I'll tell you what, I read about stuff in those letters that I hadn't heard about. Oh, a little spicy? Was it a little spicy? That's the, that's the implication. He does uh-huh. not go into details. Ah, okay. <laughs> and she does not offer any details. But it's interesting because Baron Proust says, well, besides those love letters, there is a letter of Pepe's which refers to a certain Ferdinand being born. And I looked up in the parish register and the Ferdinand registered is not Ferdinand Gregor. It's Ferdinand Macropolis, born out of wedlock. The father's name is not given, and the mother's name is Elena Macropolis. So, you see, this does nothing to support Albert Gregor's claim. So unless someone can connect Macropolis to Albert Gregor, he has no claim whatsoever. Ever confident, Amelia Marty says, well, someone will come along and make a connection. You will see. Right, exactly. And Baron Proust makes his departure and Albert Gregor enters. Albert Gregor continues to press his love upon Amelia. Uh And she has just about had it with him. Right. He is so passionate about her, and she is so cold towards him. He can't stand it anymore, and he finally says to her, nothing seems to move you. You're as cold as steel. It's as if you'd risen from the grave. It's perversity loving you, and yet I do love you. I would tear the flesh from your body. Oh, (laughs) all right. Gregor says, don't provoke me. I love you, although you destroy me, Amelia. And he presses his case with her so much that he threatens to kill Amelia. Her response to this? Uh, I I double-dog dare you? (laughs) Disdain, absolute disdain. You stupid fool, she says. You see that scar in my throat? That was from another man who said he would kill me. She's immortal. If I stripped myself naked in front of you, then you could see all my other souvenirs, my other scars. Why is it that men feel they must kill me? And he says, oh, but I love you so. I mean, this is, this is the state he's in. Then kill yourself. If only you knew that I am past all caring. If only you knew. So 
This is a very unusual situation. Most women would be a little concerned when a large, a man much larger than herself threatens to kill her. Mm-hmm. She's, she's not in the least bit concerned with his threats. And he changes from threats to, to begging and pleading with her. And she is completely unmoved by him. And then we have another admirer who enters. And this time, it's the Baron. It's the Baron's son. Uh, oh, okay. Him too. Yeah, Yannick. And Yannick comes in and he's smitten. And she thinks, ooh, maybe Yannick can be of some use to me. And she wants Yannick to go in and find some more documents in the house. And he's like, oh, I don't think my dad's going to like that. And she makes fun of him a little bit about the dad not liking it. And she belittles him. Mm -hmm. Oh, poor baby. Yeah, yeah. And so when she's in the middle of doing this, then the Baron comes in. And it's... It's an ugly scene because she's not kind to any of them. The kindest thing she's done so far is sign the poster for Krista. Mm -hmm. She's not kind to any of these men. I mean, not that they're terribly kind to her. I mean, some of them, I mean, Yannick has not done anything other than, you know, try to be sweet to her. But Bruce, who comes in at the end, realizes there's something else she wants from his home because he's heard what she says to his son. Mm Mm-hmm. And he says, I'll go ahead and bring you what you want. And she says, yeah, bring it to me. Just come to my hotel. I'll give you what you want. Oh. And you, and you give me what I want. And that's the end of Act Two. Oh, dear. Okay. Ja was miluję. 
case by Leos Janacek, we find ourselves in a hotel room. And who is there, Pat? And what do we need to know about the action? Well, the hotel room will become quite populated later on, but at the moment, when we open, just two individuals are in this hotel room. Emilia Marti, the famed opera singer, and the Baron, Prus. And it is quite clear they have spent some intimate time together. Oh, really? Well, that was the implication at the end uh-huh. of Act 2. Okay, well, I'm a little slow on the uptake. I didn't know that that's what uh, we were talking about, but I'm I'm up to speed now. <laughs> yes, and that that was part of the deal that she cut in exchange for this paperwork that she wanted from the Baron. Mm-hmm. And as an honorable man, he takes the papers out of his breast pocket and he tosses it over to her and she is quite happy to receive the paperwork from him and he is not happy. I think let's just get a sense of what's going on by listening a little bit to this scene and then I'll fill in a little bit more about what's happening. Черта, як він, 
dlouho žít. A dokud člověka těší milovat, uživej lásky. So in the Macropolis case by Leos Janacek, we are in Act 3, set in a hotel room where Emilia Marti and Baron Proust have brokered an exchange, and she has received the papers that she requested, and she appears to be quite pleased, and he appears to be not quite as pleased. So why is he not pleased, Pat? Well, when a man goes to a woman's bedroom with something in exchange, he expects to have a a night of passion. And his comment is that you're as cold as ice. It's like embracing a dead thing. Mm. He's pretty much disgusted with himself for having spent time with her. And she is defiant with him and just says, do you want to spit in my face then? He says, no, I'd rather spit in my own. Oh, she doesn't care. She simply doesn't care. She's gotten what she wants. And her chambermaid comes in a little embarrassed because there's a man in her mistress's room and says, is the Baron Proust here? His servant's here. And, he, and he's very agitated, very agitated. Doesn't say what's wrong. But the Baron goes out and a very ordinary scene takes place where the chambermaid is trying to brush Marty's hair and her hair is she's having a difficult time because she's so upset because she saw the servant being so upset and we finally realize what the problem is the baron comes in and says my only son he was my only son and it turns out Yannick his only son the one who was in love with Krista and then seemed to find Emilia Marty so appealing because his love for Amelia Marti was unrequited. He's killed himself. Oh dear. And left a note for his father indicating that. Poor Yannick. Well, that's what Proust says. And you know what Marty's response to that is? He should have been tougher? She she's doing she just her hair. Shrugged. She doesn't really yeah. care. She she's just like, says ah, lots of people killed themselves. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Proust can't believe it. You're doing your hair? What? Do you want my hair to look untidy? <laughs> She's a piece of work, isn't she? She is. And it's time for Maxie to show up. Oh, is this her elderly lover? Yes. Better known as Hauk. Hauk. Yes. And Hauk comes in, and guess what he has with him? A dozen roses? Yeah. A box of chocolate? <laughs> Handfuls of jewels. All of this jewelry belongs to my wife, Matilda. I took it from her. She's old. It's terrible to be old. So I just took it from her. She won't notice. She can't That's really see. That's basically what he's yeah. saying. He, she doesn't have but, anywhere but, to wear it anyway. Yeah. it's And he's like, I'm crazy. I'm an old crazy man. I'm going to live on love. So it's, it's interesting. <laughs> this, this whole show is filled with these comments about mortality and growing old and all of the things that come with being alive, dying or not dying. 
as the case may be here. And he is ready to leap into the arms once again of the woman he believes to be his long-lost lover. Mm-hmm. And Amelia Marty is, is ready to go with him. But enter, remember I said the, uh, the room was going to get pretty populated, this bedroom? Oh, yes. Uh... <laughs> Dr. Colinati, Vitek, Krista, Prus, a doctor, Gregor, and they all come into the bedroom. <laughs> Why are they all there? They're all there for a reason. They've all got issues they want to discuss with her. <laughs> yes. She's popular. <laughs> She's, I mean, it, it, it is getting kind of crazy here. And Colinati says, we, we have to have some serious conversation with you, madame. And she says... I, I don't really want to talk with you men right now. He says, but I need to show you this document. This missing document, the one that you provided for us, dated 1833. Do you realize that the ink on it is still fresh and it smears? And even more importantly, do you realize that the signature on this document matches the signature on the poster that you signed for my daughter? backstage last night? Aha! The jig is up, Amelia Marti. Well, that's what they all think, which is why they go storming into her bedroom. And Marti, she's so calm. She says, no, I swear that that document was written by Elian McGregor. When? Because I am Elian McGregor. She says, it doesn't matter when. And he said, but of course it matters. She's like, just go away, little man. Go away. He's like, I'm busy. I gotta do my hair. I got this old guy. He's got all these jewels for me. I'm busy. (laughs) Well, yeah. And she finally says, well, okay, fine. I'll answer your questions. But first, I need to eat my breakfast and I need to get dressed. So please excuse me for a few moments. That seems reasonable. And she departs. (laughs) So when she departs to her dressing room to eat her breakfast and to get dressed, they start rifling through her drawers, through her luggage. Hmm. And they find all sorts of interesting things. I bet. What's in there? Well, all kinds of documents with interesting names on them, medallions, and, well, who's this Eugenia Montez, and who's Elsa Mueller, and Elian McGregor, and Katrina Mishkin? I can tell you what I'm sensing, Pat, is they all have the same initials. I mean, Hmm. I'm a little bit of a sleuth. Yeah, Vitek noticed the same thing, as a matter of fact. Ah, Vitek is a sleuth too, apparently. Apparently, you and Vitek. Yeah. We have a lot in common. Yeah. Well, about this time, she has gotten dressed. She's had her breakfast, and she comes in dressed to the nines, holding a glass and a bottle of whiskey. Oh. And the whiskey may, in fact, have been her breakfast. Ah. <laughs> and they try to take it from her, and she's like, uh uh uh, this is my medicine. <laughs> you can't take this from me. And Colinati, the most self-important of the people there, straightens himself up and says, Madam, what is your name? She says, my name is Elena Micropolis. And where were you born? I was born in Crete. And what is your age? She doesn't answer that one. A lady never tells her age. So he rephrases the question and asks for the year of her birth, 1575. And he gets totally flustered and angry. And she just stops him and she says, well, yes, that makes me 337 years old. She is like the Red Lady from Game of Thrones. (laughs) And he says, who was your father? 
My father was Hieronymus Macropolis, private physician to Emperor Rudolf II. Okay, 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 I have had enough of this fantasy. And Proust says, okay, okay, let me try. And so he says, what's your real name? Helena Macropolis. And he says, are you related to the Helena Macropolis, who is the mistress of Josef Proust? She and I are one. And what about Elian McGregor? She and I are one. <laughs> Just like, I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and she says, I, I am the mother of Ferdinand Gregor. But in the register, I had no option but to give his real name, Ferdinand Macropolis. Once again, Colonati says, and when were you born? And at this point, she is losing patience. She's like, guys, I'm being straight. We should, by the way, she's drunk, so it, it's a little hard for them to take it seriously, plus the fact that everything she's saying makes no sense right. based on all their experience with reality. <laughs> guys, I was born in 1575. My name has also been, for the record, Ekaterina Mishkin, Elsa Mueller, how could you live for 300 years and never change your name? 300 years. She drinks whiskey for breakfast. That's how she lives for 300 years. <laughs> That's right. So let's hear a little bit of this. And you can hear the rising tension in the voices of all of these people. And then we'll come back and let you know how the rest of this unfolds. <laughs> Chceš se nabit? Pardičko, to jsou a vůz. 
Listening to Opera for Everyone, and on today's episode, we are listening to the Macropolis case by Leos Janacek. And our opera diva Amelia has revealed that she is 330 some odd years old, and uh, everyone is dumbfounded, and they're all in her bedroom, and she's drunk. And then what happens, Pat? <laughs> well, she may be drinking a lot of whiskey, but she is telling nothing but the truth about her age, about all of her names, and about her lack of care for other human beings. Because as she's let us know at various moments throughout this show, when you live that many years, you become disengaged with the people around you because you can't connect with them because you, you do have a sense of them being impermanent in your life like her response when she hears that Yannick dies. Oh, people die all the time because she's grown accustomed to that. So they want to get to the the bottom of the, the case about like, well, how did you know about the will in that drawer in the house where you've never been? Well, of course, she said, well, I, I was there. I was Pepe's lover. I was the mother of this child. Well, how did you know all of that and why did you care so much about whether or not he inherited this land? She's like, I didn't care about who inherited what land. That that was of no importance to me. I don't I don't care about any of my children. There's tons of my children on this earth and I don't I don't love or care about any of them because they're just like all the other people. They're temporary on the earth. And these people are stunned at this comment. She's like, I wanted that paper from my father that I gave to Pepe. And now they're really listening. She said, it was the Macropolis paper. And here, although I don't speak or read the Czech language, if I look over in my libretto to the Czech, it is the Vec, V-E-C, Macropolis, which is in fact also the name of this opera in the original Czech, is the Vec Macropolis. 
So it's the Macropolis case, oftentimes, or the Macropolis affair, when it's translated into English. But as with so many <laughs> translations, it never encompasses the full meaning, and translators have to make a choice. But this Macropolis case, or this Macropolis affair, the word can be used to apply to the legal case, and or it can also be used to apply to this this paper, which Hieronymus Macropolis, her father, had written for the emperor originally, and then she came in possession of. And she's going to explain that this paper is something that... This is the reveal! <laughs> so this, this Vec Macropolis means both the case and this paper she was looking for. It is this document, this prescription, this formula that her father had written out for the emperor at the emperor's direction. He wanted a formula for longevity, for long life. And her father, as an alchemist, came up with the formula. But the emperor, she explains, didn't trust that it was going to work. And he said, I think it could be poisonous, and I don't trust you. You test it out on your daughter. You make her take it. And she appeared to fall dead or into a coma or be very ill. And she was unwell for a long time. And the emperor punished her father, and the emperor never took or believed in this longevity potion that her father had devised. Well, needless to say, she recovered, got her hands on the formula, and benefited from this longevity formula by living all of these years. And she explains that she liked Pepe so well, this, this original Baron Proust that we talk about from the will, that she... She wanted him to take it too. She gave it to him, and he ended up secreting it away with his will. And she was feeling about this time the effects of the formula wearing off. And so she wanted to get a hold of it so that she could, essentially, she could create another dose and extend her life. They could re-up. Yeah. And she holds this paper in her hand, the one that the Baron gave her after their night in bed together. And she she's triumphant in having received it. But you can see she's reconsidering whether it is something she truly wants or not. To live another 300 years. Yeah, because does it really make sense to continue living when you become so disconnected from the mortals, essentially, around you, when you're not really like them? Interesting. Again, that's what we've seen with her already. She doesn't care about people the way everyone else does. And Proust is, is dumbstruck. He's dumbfounded. He says, did you ever show anyone this Macropolis document? No, just, just Pepe. He's the only one, the original Baron Proust. And she's, she's made it very clear that she, she doesn't care about what all of it. They, they're all like yelling about uh, signatures and, and wills and like none of the rest of their concerns are at the level of her concern. And she, she's beginning to let go of it all. And they suddenly realize that she's on this other plane. And suddenly, Colinati, who's been so self-important, mm -hmm. realizes she's not lying. 
Proust chimes in, she's not lying. Gregor, she's not lying. Vitek says, she's not lying. And around this time, she's declining precipitously. And it is one of those, as, as you might imagine, one of those great operatic deaths that we're going to see here on stage. And she will let us know it is a great mistake to live so long. Oh, if you could only know how easy life is for you. You're so close to life. You see life as, as having some meaning. Life has some value for you. Fools, how happy you all are. And it's due to the paltry chance that you will all die soon. You believe in mankind, in love, in virtue, in progress. There's nothing more that you can want. And these thoughts are echoed by a choir that sings behind her, unseen. So as she's dying, she's still grasping this paper that has this secret formula on it to extend life. And she gives it to the one person she cares about in that room. Maxie. No. No? She gives it to the one person she cares about in that room. She gives it to Krista. She says, I robbed you of your lover. You're beautiful. Please take this. It'll make you a famous singer, just like Amelia Marty. Take it. Take it, girl. And she takes it. And remember, that's what, that's what she wanted, Krista. But Krista is a smart girl, and she realizes what a curse it was, in fact, for Amelia. And she sets it ablaze with the flame of a candle and destroys it. <gasps> Marty dies. And that's the end of the opera.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. And I'm Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, where you can also send us a message. We know that opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. That's why our mission is to make Opera opera for for everyone. everyone.